one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Where's Vlado edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Daily Beast, and I'm just so relieved you guys were recording this on a Monday morning. We can finally confirm Russian President Vladimir Putin is alive. Maybe not well, but he is alive. And I was worried about him. <laughs> yeah, I was worried too. I was going to miss him a lot, actually. Because there are all these people in Ukraine who have just been just worried sick about him for the last 11 days. and Literally. And yes. Yes. <laughs> um, and I, I just, I'm so glad he's back and, and you know, we're, we're, we're able to, to breathe a sigh of relief. I'm waiting for the conspiracy theories to start that it's a body double. That it's not really Isn't him. it? Isn't it? Isn't it? But after course, yes, it is. It's a body double. All Tell the everyone. manly photos we've seen of him on horses, it would be hard to uh, yeah. compute with that. Yeah, Even any stunt double. Any really. stunt double. Uh, Take the shirt off and then we'll judge who really is <laughs> yeah. right, Vladimir Putin. <laughs> um, I actually, I, that, I was really enjoying this whole saga, though. I just thought it was fantastic. Where's Vladimir Putin? So we'll eventually find out, or maybe we won't, whether he was uh, sick with this flu that's racking most of Russia or with a love child or... Or maybe just a victim of the general uh, terrible Russian healthcare system. <laughs> yeah. So I'm joined as always by my friend Ben Wittes, upstart rock climber. You've been doing a lot of rock climbing lately. I've been doing a, a, a mostly uh, belaying other people while uh, rock climbing because of, of my calf injury. Right, right. But right. a little bit of rock climbing myself. <laughs> I'm seeing a lot more of this on Facebook. I was actually, I was reading this great book. I've been reading this book called The Georgetown Set which is sort of all about that kind of like Marshall Plan, post-Marshall Plan era, Alsop brothers and all the others who were influential. Richard Bissell, or Bissell, however you want to say it, was a famous CIA officer who uh, ran the YouTube spy program and Bay of Pigs operation. Avid rock climber, a free climber. Wow. He actually fell off a rock, nearly broke his back. It was a rock in Connecticut. And then two weeks later went back uh, unattended, unroped, and climbed it again. Well, I, I have never done unroped <laughs> climbing myself. Um, well, you will be launching no CIA operations in the future either, I, I uh, suspect. Presumably, uh, hopefully, none as botched as, um, <laughs> <laughs> as his. <laughs> not such a great rock climber. He tried. Yeah. He went well, back and said that, to his credit, he did not try to go back and reinvade Cuba. Well, eventually, the, the Castro brothers will fall, and that will be the, the, the example. Yeah. Uh, the, there the, you go. Climbing without a net. This is our metaphor for yeah, I like <laughs> really this. committing to botched like operations. I like <laughs> and that voice you just heard is our special guest this week, Merritt Baer. Hello, Merritt. Hello. Merritt is a technology advisor advising all kinds of organizations, young companies, the government, um, ben and I met Merritt at a conference in, where the hell were we? Washington, Washington, Lee. Washington, we were Lee. Washington Not William Lee. and Mary. It was not William, it was Correct. Washington and Lee. Two yes. different names, yeah. Yes, exactly. I thought I was going to one, but it turned out to be the other. And one of the organizations <laughs> that Merritt has sometimes advised since then is Lawfare, ah. uh, where she has, she has given me excellent advice about uh, matters that will 
I think remain confidential for now, <laughs> but maybe maybe sometime we will we will disclose what she has consulted with us about. Mm. Sounds like another like an enigmatic Vladimir Putin kind of situation. Exactly. Well, Vladimir Putin was part of those conversations. Right. That's where he was. That's hanging ten out days with you, advising. Right. Okay, on this week's show, the tides are shifting in the Israeli election, and Benjamin Netanyahu's victory does not seem certain. The promise and perils of highly interconnected systems. We're going to talk about that, and also the FBI is busting up a child sex abuse ring in South Africa, of all places. Uh, we're going to talk about why. Uh, let's start with our wordplay segment. Um, ben, you're going to handicap uh, the Israeli elections for us here a bit and break that down for us. So one thing you can never say in the Israeli election context is that there is late movement in the polls because it is actually illegal to release polls within several days of the election. So there, there goes to be a basic poll blackout starting Friday. Um, but the last set of legal polls uh, seem to show that the expected bump that Netanyahu was supposed to get from coming to Washington and you know formally joining the Republican Party um, <laughs> did not materialize. And in fact, uh, the main opposition party, the Labor Party, which is now running with uh, the former uh, foreign minister Tsipi Livni, uh, is, uh, I wouldn't say quite surging, but, but doing well, as is the joint list of Arab parties, which is uh, a really interesting development for a lot of reasons. And the uh, traditional uh, right-wing parties are uh, struggling to one degree or another, including particularly Netanyahu's party, uh, which has faded significantly in the last few days. Um, and this raises the question, and which has been the subject of a lot of media speculation, both in Israel and in the United States over the last 48 hours, could he actually lose this election? Now, Israeli elections are complicated because, first of all, there's an election, and then there's the coalition negotiations that follow the elections. The elections, the, the Knesset, unlike uh, a two-party system, it's not, a, not just not a two-party system, it's sort of an infinite party system. There are 120 seats in the Knesset, and the um, top two parties in the Knesset have between them less than half of those seats. Um, so in order to put together any government, you need not just, as in many European contexts, a par a two parties or sometimes three-party coalition, you need a many-party coalition. Uh, and so the question of who wins an election and who gets to form the government can be only relatively dimly related. Um, they're, ne they're not unrelated, but they're not uh, closely related questions. Still, it's a very remarkable thing that Netanyahu has gone from almost certainly everyone assumed to be the current and future prime minister before and after this election, who called this election because he didn't like the composition of his current government and he thought he could get himself a better deal, to someone who is unlikely tomorrow to get more votes than the principal opposition and may not be the person tasked with forming the next government. So in practical terms, for, for the big issue in U.S. foreign policy right now, which is vis-a-vis -vis Israel, which is the Iran negotiations. <clears throat> if he is no longer the prime minister, what does that do to our posture? What, what opportunities does that open up? What pitfalls does that create? 
So there's a lot of consensus in Israel that does not necessarily favor the six, you know, the, the multi-party P5 plus one talks with Iran. And um, there's a lot of fear of Iran in Israel. Uh, on the other hand, Netanyahu has been extremely forward-leaning in being oppositional with respect to the United States on this. And the principal opposition party, the Labor Party, would just never do that. And they would not, you know, they have promised to restore relations with the United States. Um, and I think it's safe to assume that they would not take a particularly forward-leaning approach to screwing up the negotiations uh, with Iran, though they may have significant anxieties about them and they may, you know, privately agree with, with Bibi that the deal that is or is not taking shape may not be the best thing in the world. It's inconceivable to me that they would sort of join with congressional Republicans to sort of stick a collective thumb in the eye of the, the, the incumbent president of the United States. So it's more of a, politically they will be, Obama obviously is secretly rooting for Netanyahu to lose, but it's not as if whoever wins in Israel is going to suddenly dramatically change the country's posture towards the Iranian nuclear program. They're just not going to come over and give politically embarrassing speeches and piss off the president as much. I mean, I think it, it, Israelis have a more acute sense of the Iranian threat um, than Americans yeah, There's do. really nobody like advocating for peaceful relations with Iran, per se, right? There's no I, I contingent mean, with Israeli politics that's like, no, they're really moderates. Well, because really there's no contingent to. in the Iranian government that takes the view that Israel should be anything other than removed from the face of the earth. And that does have a way of concentrating opinion and the other thing you have to remember about the Iranian regime is that it's the principal sponsor of Hezbollah, which is sitting on Israel's northern border with a large number of shells and, you know, periodically uh, rockets uh, the entire northern third of, of, of Israel. And so there's a hard-won appreciation that this is not a regime that Israel has business to do with. And there's a pretty uniform terror of the idea of Iran as a nuclear power, both because of its own capabilities and because of its relationship with groups that have, uh, you know, active military hostilities with the Israelis, including, you know, Hezbollah and sometimes, you know, in a, not in an active way, but, you know, the Syrian regime right. is, is, is a... Is a you know, Iranian client at this point as well. And so there's, you know, you're not going to find an Israeli government that is enthusiastic about the idea of American-Iranian rapprochement. The question is really, do you value the relationship with the United States enough that you are willing to suppress some of those doubts or convey them privately rather than to go public and, you know, campaign against uh, U.S. policy, and I, I do think that's a, a big would be a big change if if you switched Israeli governments. So, w is is the reason that Netanyahu is facing this possibility of defeat? I mean, he's the second longest serving prime minister in the history of the country, but do people really like him all that much? So, first of all, Israel has um, Bibi Netanyahu is in no in no circles a loved figure. He is 
the word you most often hear to describe him personally is Nixonian, which is, you know, like, and that's been <laughs> And not in the complimentary way. No, and, 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 and what's interesting is that that's been true since the 90s, you know, that, you know, he's been around a long time and he was a sort of young upstart politician and the word everybody attached to him was Nixonian and he's hung around a long time. A lot of people who are ideologically simpatico with him do not like him, uh, unlike, you know, Ariel Sharon, his predecessor, whom a lot of people, who, including his political enemies, had a lot of personal affection for. Um, you know, he was somebody who people, a lot of people regarded as a war criminal at for certain periods of his career, but everybody liked him at a personal right. level. And Bibi's kind of the opposite, right. you know, even people who admire his political canny, which is certainly admirable, and who agree with his politics really don't like him. Uh, in addition, Israel has a series of very divisive domestic issues that, you know, we don't talk about much when we talk about Israel because we think about, you know, the relationship with the Palestinians, we think about uh, the, uh, you know, Iranian issues, security issues. Um, but this is a country with uh, extreme income inequality, um, American-style income inequality, but that is more painful for Israelis than for Americans because it's not a country that has our sort of laissez-faire tradition. It's a country with a very deep socialist tradition and sort of egalitarian tradition that has come upon income inequality of a very acute sort. Um, and so there's a lot of anxiety. Uh, the population is very concentrated in in a, a relatively small area of what is a very small country, which has driven housing prices absolutely through the roof. And so you have a lot of people who can't afford a lot of things that you know they see a lot of people have. Um, in addition, you have religious secular tensions that are you know, frankly hard for Americans to understand, um, both because they, they so wildly eclipse anything that we experience as religious secular tensions in this country, but also because they involve religious secular tensions of a very uniquely Jewish sort. Um, and they're not, this isn't, you know, the Christian right or the, um, you know, Catholic conservatism. Uh, it's, a, it's an unusually uh, Jewish presentation of, um, of that constellation of problems. And then finally, there's the basic problem, up, again, apart from the question of how you negotiate with the Palestinians and what kind of, what kind of uh, uh, arrangement could you come to, there is the question of how you, how you integrate and treat uh, the one-fifth of the country that are, that are not Jews but, but Arab citizens of Israel. And that has been a uh, problem that has magnified as the country has, as that component of the citizenry has grown. Okay, so next week I'm sure we will, we'll, we'll have the answers next week. Yeah, we'll, yeah. We'll, we, 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 will, we, will, we will know everything tomorrow night. Plot Israel's future. None of it. Next week, tune in. Okay, Merritt, uh, you have brought what looks like a very interesting book that you want to talk about for your work. A well-worn book. A well-worn book, yes. You have clearly been reading this. Uh, I think it's just because I took it on a plane and spilled some coffee on it. But, well, uh, it looks great. It's important to weather well your books so they look red. 
Oh, yeah. yours, on the other hand, I have yours here, and they're brand new. So. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> you can spill coffee on ours. Yeah, I'll work on that. Look at those two excellent-looking books. I mean, I figure they're going to be worth a lot more autographed. Oh, well, yes, Well, when we will take a picture of you with both of them. Yeah. Yes, that could I be my object be lesson. Perfect. Uh, well, tell us about your book. Um, okay, so this is actually, uh, it's called Interop. It's by John Palfrey and Urs Gasser. Um, and it's a book from 2012, um, but I revisit it because it is really talking more about a system-wide view than any one particular um, case study or point in time. Um, they walk through interoperability as what they call both a lens and a design principle to view the, the more interconnected systems that we are encountering. For example, um, it is a way to think about how currency functions and whether like the, the, they give the global economic market as a relatively interconnected system um, where you can exchange one currency for another, you can take your credit card to Germany and use it there. And then at the same time, it is also a design principle if you are building technology mm. or building the technology that deals in between those, that they identify four layers that have to be present or that through which one can analyze the presence of interoperability. And those are tech, data, human, and institutional. Mm. So tech is you know, the, the bones, but I, I, even once you have the, they li give a literal example of the railroad system, even once you have the railroad there, if the data that you're getting doesn't um, mean anything when you receive it, then you have lost that layer. Um, the human layer, the example is language, but it could be also just like a viability to use, to do something about that. And then the institutional layer is stuff like legal systems, where we have a lot of examples of lack of interoperability. Anyway, they, um, they walk through some examples, the smart grid, electronic health records, which are still relevant, um, and I think in some ways, like this is not news, but in other ways, we're really, they sort of presume in the book that there is a level, an optimal level of interoperability. And I see that as a fundamental sort of misunderstanding hmm. because I think we're creating new problems as we create new ways of talking to each other. And we're also creating new opportunities with those. So, for example, <clears throat> they give one example, which is like this company that used to be called Ophoto is now Kodak. And how do you know you'll be able to access your online photo album in five years? And I'm thinking, I don't even have a photo album. What I do have is Facebook and Instagram. These are all company proprietary. And if I wanted to print out my Facebook timeline for my granddaughter, would that be even relevant or doable? I mean, mm -hmm. the kinds of products that we want to show about ourselves are perhaps proprietary to companies. And this is something that I think, not only is it something that comes up day to day because you have your like old laptop and you can't get your senior thesis off it anymore, um, but also because you just have new, you have products that are filling needs you didn't think you had, um, and then owning them. Um, and so I see this, especially as we negotiate these sort of company to company, company to government, company to consumer relationships. You know, cloud storage is a good one. Does Amazon own my memories in some sense? I'm fascinated by this, but I'm also, it's a little opaque to me how this is about security. Okay. And I, I feel in my bones <laughs> like it obviously is. Yeah. But I'm also, I'm not sure I could put my finger on it. Okay. So break it down. 
Well, there are a lot of reasons, but I'll give one that's on your terms because you were talking at Washington Lee about um, culture being a main component in the sense that um, of, of a sense of privacy, let's say, in the sense that um, people may not even care that much about whether Amazon sees that they're reading Fifty Shades of Grey, but they certainly care whether their next door neighbor does. And so the role of government or the lack of presence of government may be something that's contingent on something other than, you know, Fourth Amendment legal doctrine, but really is more of a negotiation of, ter of norms. Um, so in the case of interoperability, let's say, um, the more interoperable your products, you as a, an individual consumer, the more data is shared, right? And the more personal data is shared. And the more specific it is to you, you know, if you have your GPS turned on on your phone, then you can find your way on Google Maps a lot easier. But this obviously opens up a new dimension of data prevalence and of it traveling through networks and devices and storage places and all these other things that are owned by companies. So generally speaking, are we more secure in a world of greater interoperability or are we more secure in a world where everything's siloed because at least then, when you have total system failure over here, you're not spreading the system failure right. through interoperability. Well, that's the question, right? I don't think there's a simple optimal point. I think you have to kind of have the conversation about where your values lie and what it's worth to you. But we don't have those negotiations publicly. We let companies buy our loyalty, if you want to call it that, and then we sort of have a default regime that's set up right now. The presumption is that it's a mix of those, right? That you want some systems highly interconnected and others highly siloed. Well, and this is sort of what makes me think about your, your and Gabby's book, Ben, is that they said you have many-to-many -many threats. And I mean, you talked about this this week on the Lawfare podcast, where if you're talking about the sort of civil liberties versus security balance, that starts to completely break down when it's companies that are essentially the ones that are in the position of influence to guarantee or fail to protect uh, your security, and in this case, if the security is your data or even your address or anything else about you that you know we might be able to find out from a company. Right, so one of the things that fascinates me about, so this is actually an issue we talk about, Gabby and I talk about in our book, that dovetails very interestingly with what, what, what Merritt is saying. Um, one of the functions that government has in this world is defining what a threat is. And there's all kinds of, you know, we always skip over that stage. But, um, you know, when new technologies come around, they always threaten something. Cars threaten to hit you on the street and kill you. And the government's response to that is a certain degree of regulation of auto manufacturers and regulation of drivers and requirements that you have insurance and whatnot, and that you get a driver's license, right? But basically, it's to say, tough luck. You might get hit by a car, and you, that's just risk you have to adopt, uh, and you have to incur as a person now in a, in a 20th century society that in a 19th century society, you didn't have to. Now, it's not inevitable that you make that choice. You, you could have chosen to treat cars like airplanes, right, and have a really rigorous licensing regime, very few cars on the roads, um, mostly by government drivers um, or by, you know, sort of a few companies. Um, but that's not the road we traveled. We decided that the 
value to society of uh, you know, mass transportation and mass private transportation was, was a really positive thing. Defining what, co- what counts as a threat is a big part of, uh, you know, of managing threat. Um, and sometimes the answer is, you know, suck it up. And sometimes the answer is we, we really define that as a problem. And I think part of the, the issue in the privacy space and the self-definition space is that we haven't really decided what we count as a threat and what we count as the sort of suck it up stuff. And, you know, a lot of people have really profoundly different instincts about, you know, should we, should we count Facebook owning the history of your life? as a threat to your autonomy, your personal independence, your ability to access your stuff? Or should we count that as sort of like an automobile, just it's part of life in the 21st century that was not part of life in the 20th century? Yeah, I think it's a good question. I mean, this is where I usually say that I think cybersecurity is a construct that's an in, you know an industry self-perpetuating itself. And what we're talking about, whether you're talking more IT-related or um, in this sense, and I think this is probably more interesting, the more um, sort of existential questions of what to protect and what we have um, a claim to, just that our people negotiating their terms with the world. Um, really, we're talking about enterprise risk management, or we're talking about you know a level of investment and return on that investment. And so in some sense, I think as systems start to be more interconnected and as you know, your car now has a range of computers in it. Um, maybe we can stop talking about cybersecurity as though it is an entity of itself. Yeah. Okay. Um, <clears throat> we're going to my wordplay now. <laughs> There's an interoperability element to this too. I think actually. Did, does Putin show up in your wordplay? God, if only. Um, no, actually, this week I, I'm going to my wordplay is I'm going to shamelessly plug something that I wrote for the Daily Beast, which is up uh, on Monday. Um, uh, I was writing sort of about the, broadly speaking, the number of cases that there have been of government employees at all levels, federal, state, and local, who've been convicted of various charges related to child sex abuse. So child pornography, proliferation of child pornography, um, and, you know, arguably even that term doesn't quite capture the depravity of some of this stuff, and you can read more about that in the article. But what was interesting to me was there was a case out of South Africa last week that I ran across in my uh, reporting on this, uh, and there was a, a, a man who was arrested by police there, accused of being sort of a kingpin or a ringleader in one of these online um, child porn rings. But what was interesting was that the FBI coordinated the arrests with South African police. And if you sort of dig into it a little bit, what happened was that the Bureau apparently got tipped off to this guy after making several arrests in the United States of um, people who were using these online anonymous networks that allow them to go online, trade photographs with each other, and also pose as young women and contact young women for the purposes of targeting them. And what struck me was that, and this kind of gets to the the interoperability of systems thing, it's sort of global, was that these presumably are many of the same techniques and technologies that would be used in a counterterrorism surveillance context, in a counterintelligence context, in a counterproliferation context, and that now this is sort of clearly, I presume, being extended into to this world uh, as well, which I have to say sounds like a, probably a good thing, net net. Um, <clears throat> but that you know, it's sort of 
we've kind of gotten to the point with technology and surveillance and tracking where the, the sort of product of or the target of the surveillance is almost incidental when you're talking about ultimately tracking people and tracking the communications that they're sending to each other. I guess I think, so child pornography is an interesting example because we go about as far there as we do with national security in the exceptional sense, right? right? We say there's basically, it defi we've carved it out from other protections and I mean, we see this, it has um, been an exception for a while, and we see it playing out constantly, and virtually no politician is going to campaign on the, you know, mitigating sentencing for child pornography offenders um, scape. What's interesting is that now that child pornography is an internet crime, because no one hands paper bags in right. alleys anymore, right. it is definitely redefining sort of the, the, how the margins define the center of surveillance and also of just like the ways in which our sense of the criminality of the act informs our um, willingness to go further than we would say we want. Mm -hmm. um, so I think in that sense, it's dangerous for all of us. I mean, it's an interesting example. I've written about it a little because of that. In cases like this, I mean, people sort of tend to conclude that the ends justify the means, um, which of course is you know, they are not why we have constitutional protections. Right, yeah. I mean, part of, the, part of the problem is that there is in the surveillance context always this category of material that you collect, then you, you collect it legally for certain purposes and then you have to figure out what, what else you're allowed to do with it. And when you have kids getting raped, it's very hard to say, yeah, but don't use it for the, the raping kids right. thing. Um, but then the line between the child pornography and other human trafficking or sex abuse becomes hard to defend. And then the line to other violent exploitative crimes becomes hard to defend. And so it is the th sort of thin edge of this wedge. But I also think it's a really interesting example of how you go after uh, both organized and highly dispersed networks of people that operate globally. Um, and I think it's a, it's a really interesting test case of the internet that like every other community, the community of people who rapes kids and want to share you know, their pictures has of course come together on the net and that makes them interoperable and uh, thus vulnerable. And it's actually easier to be the child pornographer who's in the back alley distributing stuff to small groups of people than you know, the sort of Facebook of child porn. Yeah, I think that's right. I think they're often presuming under, uh, like doing business under a false assumption of anonymity because obviously yeah. they weren't. Um, which is also sort of like being a hacker these days <laughs> in some cases. You know. It's also an area in which you know even hackers have morals about this. So right. we end up seeing Absolutely. anonymous replacing links with to catch a predator. And you know like a whole the, operation death op death watch that's we really come together that, on this, this one one issue and I'm not saying it's not warranted, but it's an interesting case study yep. of what? ways we can when we d all decide we really can do right. a lot of and the you have to be, and we also have to be make as you point out I mean to be careful that we don't just abandon all sense of what the boundaries need to be just because we all agree this is despicable and heinous which it is and in some ways you almost have to guard even more judiciously because it would be so easy to you know sort of like let those civil liberties protections slip away because right. it's being done in the name of 
combating this crime. I also think there's analogies to sort of the, you know, the quote-unquote the war on drugs. And the question that I kept asking in my reporting, and I'm doing more reporting on this, is, okay, so there's this network of people that seem to be the ones that are getting arrested, who are the ones who are trading the photographs and the videos. Who are the people who are producing those photographs and videos? Because my suspicion is they are, in many cases, very different than the end user and consumer. Yeah, that is, so in in the research I've seen, right, I was going to say, I did some work on this at the Berkman Center, and of course, this was, I I left Berkman Center in 2010, and so this was still, I think the thinking has changed now, but at the time, they were still looking for um, biometric solutions to child safety, Mm. and so it was like, we'll get a knuckle scanner, and then kids will be safe online, because they can only get into their walled gardens. And I was kind of the one who was like, oh, you don't think that child predators have access to child knuckles? But anyway, so now we're kind of starting to see that it is more complicated than a purely technical um, issue. Um, but basically, it's, a lo- it's usually a male who has access to the child but is not her father. So it's a stepdad, it's an uncle, oh, it's a I cousin. See. That's a vast majority of the cases. It's mom's boyfriend a lot of times. Um, and who's producing the images. And then they get traded. Once they're on there, they keep a series, is what they call it, of the same child victim, which, of course, reflects not just the fact that the producer is making a series, or the child rapist. I kind of like that better. It, it's much less scrubbed than, yeah, you know. call it what it is. But also because Nick Mick, went, in order to do the prosecutions, they keep track of the series, and you have a unique hashtag Nick for each uh, National Center for Missing and Exploited Florida. Children. Um, they actually, because of our strong First Amendment um, protections, we where we came out in Ashcroft uh, saying that you can't, you have to prove it was a real child victim, and you have to point to that victim. We have a database where you have to identify the child victim, and they do a lot of that work. Don't images. They? Yeah, they they house it. It's a very unique. They are like a quasi governmental right, yeah. because. You know, Google has to, when they see suspected child porn, they send it to, to NCMEC to add to their library, and then NCMEC alerts FBI, and it, like, the wheels go into motion. And this is another interesting question of confrontation clause, which I wrote about. Yeah. And it's also interoperability there, too, with these oh, various yeah. different agencies. Right, together. and of, it's interoperable, but there's lack of human involvement. It's hard to know who to call or who to point to as the, the witness to this kind of crime. Like, when they report the data to NCMEC, then Google has presumably done only a cursory scrubbing of the, the, informa- the data to get to the point where they have to report it. But at that point it gets seized, it gets sent to law enforcement. You know, like, so there's a, a lot of sort of insulation. If you're someone who's accused of child pornography possession, there's a lot of insulation between you and anyone who could be a witness to your internet crime. Right. Um, more stuff for me to report on, too, obviously. Um, all right, let's go on to uh, object lesson. Yeah. Ben, what's your show and tell? So I have been thinking a lot about <coughs> book promotion issues recently <laughs> for reasons I'm sure you can't imagine. Wait, did you write a book? I am actually talking about a different book today, um, which is uh, the new book called ISIS, The State of Terror by uh, my good friend Jessica Stern and uh, my Brookings colleague J.M. Berger, who have uh, teamed up to write a very timely book about ISIS. Uh, I don't know how they got it done so quickly, but it looks actually like a remarkably interesting book. We're going to be running some excerpts from it on Lawfare this week. Um, And uh, I intend to uh, read it promptly and, and encourage others to do the same. Great. And I'm already seeing, actually, uh, on Twitter, people tweeting 
that cover. So good for them. They're getting a lot of good press. Yes. Uh, Merritt, what is your object? So this fits in perfectly with our Ooh. child pornography discussion. Okay. <laughs> um, believe it or not, it is a, a Christmas ornament from USCAF, Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. Okay. Which is um, the military's highest appellate court. Which you um, clerked on. Which I clerked on, right. So one, I just thought it was funny because it's one of those bizarre things about D.C. that you have various like day-to-day objects with the highest court in the land printed on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and at this Christmas party, you know, you do run into like the judge just drinking wine, running into the door. You know, like it is an odd <laughs> mix of the ephemeral and the very pedantic. Um, but also, they are an interesting, I clerked on it in part because um, about two-thirds of their caseload is child pornography appeals. Oh, wow. So, and that really is a reflection, not not of the prevalence of child pornography um, infractions, because this is not a trial-level court, um, but of the fact that we don't know what to do about Internet law, and especially when you add a military lens onto it. So in um, the military, uh, you it, it is the same 18 U.S.C. statute, but it's brought in through their Articles 133 and 134, which are conduct unbecoming an officer and a gentleman, and um, conduct prejudicial to good order and discipline. So in that case, that you have a different standard, um, and they do not require you to produce a real child victim, because it could be prejudicial to good order and discipline, even if it were, quote, virtual. But it's an interesting um, set of questions, because we basically assume when you go into military law, you're looking at things, they do have constitutional protections, but they are tempered by the fact that they are in the military. So, you know, it's a crime not to show up for work. So in addition to all our existing questions about internet law, and we now have incidences where there are people in a military context, a a little bit different alignment of where we expect to see government's role when you're in the military. And they do have a nice Christmas ornament. There you go. Okay, my object lesson uh, is a photograph. Uh, Listeners will remember, I think maybe like six or seven episodes ago, I brought in my grandfather's World War II service record, which I've been looking for forever. Um, So I've embarked on a new uh, uh, journey slash mission here, which is to try and identify, to the extent that they're still alive and talk to them, uh, people who actually served with my grandfather in the war. So what I have here is a photograph. This is my, we're going to put this on the website, obviously. It's my grandfather on the left they were uh, C-40, he was a C-47 pilot in the war, which was a cargo plane. And I presume these three men with him are people who either knew him or flew with him and are not just people who <laughs> got together for the purposes of <laughs> posing for a picture to send home. Um, so I am going to, both with the records that I have, uh, which have names, uh, <clears throat> but also I thought it would be a fun, uh, try and find these guys, but also thought it would be a fun kind of crowdsourcing experiment to put the photograph online and to the extent that you see this and recognize one of these people as your grandfather or, you know, your husband or whomever. Find um, Shane's grandfather's that's right. buddies. That's right. Find grandpa's buddies. Help me find them. No Rational security. left unturned. No exactly. Right. Going to find these men who are probably about 94 years old right now. So move fast, people. Okay. <laughs> All right. That brings us to the end of the show. Uh, Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can go to our website, SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com, and find other great podcasts that we have for you there. You can follow Rational Security on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. Uh, Please download the podcast and leave a review on iTunes, on Stitcher, wherever you download. Tell your friends about it. Tweet shamelessly. 
The reviews also really help us solidify the base uh, and make sure that more people are finding out about the podcast as well. Rational Security is edited by Jen Howell. Our music is performed by Vladimir Putin's Body Double. Actually, that doesn't sound right. I think the music is performed, as always, this week by Sophia Yan. Yeah, although, you know, Putin just popped up sometimes and, and, yeah, yeah, and, he did. and plays. Maybe, yeah, they, I, they do know each other. You've never seen them in a picture together. <laughs> well, that doesn't mean anything. Uh, on behalf of Ben Willis and Maripair, our special guest, I'm Shane Harris, and we will talk to you again next week. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.